Well, although the New Testament calls all believers saints, um, in church history there have been misunderstandings about this where people will think that uh, you reach a certain level of holiness and then you can be declared a saint. The early church even started to set aside particular days that uh, were feast days for certain saints. So if you grew up Catholic, then you might know about this, especially if you have a name. Um, if you are named after a saint, then you will know the date of your, your saint, uh, for example. So for today's date um, is uh, St. Albert. Uh, that's today's feast date, St. Albert. He lived in the 1200s. Tomorrow is St. Gertrude the Great. She was also somebody who lived in the 1200s. And, and so if you want to celebrate her tomorrow, she was famous for, she started having visions when she was 25 years old, and then she was, um, she had an encounter, I think, with Mary at one point um, that really changed her life. And then she also started practicing something called nuptial mysticism, which wasn't very common in the early church, but uh, it's what she became known for, where she, well, we won't go into details. Let's just say that she described herself as the bride of Christ, the actual person that Jesus was married to. Anyway, that's tomorrow's feast day. Um, the problem you can imagine, though, if you start having a feast set aside for each of your saints, what happens when you get to more than 365 saints? And so this problem was anticipated by uh, Pope Boniface the fourth in 609 AD, and he came up with this creative solution when once you get to 365, we won't be able to have a feast day, so they had this day, the 1st of November, which was called All Saints Day, and what that means is any saint who didn't have their own feast day is now lumped in on the 1st of November, and that's All Saints Day, and not only that, he also declared that the following day, November 2nd, would be all Souls Day. So this is if you have someone in your life that you consider to be particularly saintly, like your grandma or whatever, and you want to venerate her and you want to celebrate her, you do that on All Souls Day. So if she's an actual saint, it's All Saints Day. If it's not, it's All Souls Day. And even as I'm speaking, you can hear that the problem developed that there was an All Saints and an All Souls, and they sounded too similar. And so people started referring to All Saints Day as All Hallows Day. And of course, the night before All Hallows Day is All Hallows Eve, which became known as Halloween. So why this history lesson? Um, I just thought it was really interesting, and it was that time of year. And also because the word hallow, the only English word really that is commonly spoken in America with the word hallowed in it is Halloween, and that's where it came from. So why? Because saints were considered to be hallowed. Hallowed means to be holy, to means to be saintly, to, to be revered, to be respected. And so this is going to help us understand the next line in the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11, turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 11, we are really crawling through this prayer at a snail's pace. We have not even made it out of verse 2, and we won't make it out of verse 2 for a while. But um, you remember, the, we're, we've learned so far that we can address God as Father. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, pray Father. And so last week we learned that God likes to be called Father, not parent, not mother-father, as some do today. Secondly, we learned that God must be your spiritual father for you to pray to him. You must be saved. Thirdly, we saw that God himself hears your prayers. You don't have to pray to a saint to go to God. You can go directly to God. Jesus said, just call him God. You just call him Father. Thirdly, that was thirdly. Fourthly, we saw that God alone can be your spiritual father, that you should call no man on earth Father, as a spiritual father, we looked at those verses and saw what that meant. And then fifthly, God desires intimacy with you. In fact, not only are we told to call him father, but the example of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 is that you can call him Abba, which is, um, in English, we would say daddy, a very intimate connection with our father. So that's what we've learned so far just in the in this prayer, we're going to go a little bit further today. Um, so verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. 
If you weren't here the past couple of weeks, that prayer will sound a little different to you than what you're used to hearing because it's not the one in Matthew. This is a, a different occasion where Jesus gives the prayer and the wording is not the same. And from that we learned that it wasn't ever intended to be a rote prayer that Christians pray. You can pray it word for word, but it, it wasn't given that way. It wasn't a template. I mean, it was more like a template rather than a, a script. Um, and so today we've got as far as saying hallowed be your name, and that's all we're going to cover tonight. Uh, Two points to help you pray prayers that God wants to answer. The meaning of this petition, and then we'll look at the motive of all your petitions. So the meaning of this petition, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I I can never say the phrase hallowed be your name without thinking of the little boy who was once asked what's God's name, and he said God's name is Howard because of this. Howard be thy name. Um, So it's not Howard, it's hallowed. Hallowed means holy or sacred or revered or respected. That's why the saints were called hallowed um, on All Hallows' Eve. Um, It means to regard someone as special and holy. So the first observation I want to make here is that this is not a greeting. It's not like, you know, Ave Maria. It's um, when you say hallowed be your name, you're not greeting God. It's not hello. God, it's hallowed be. It's actually a petition. It's the first thing that you're saying in your prayer. It's the first thing that you're actually asking for. You're petitioning him. Um, the word petition just means to, to ask. Like, you know, we sign a petition. I remember in my high school, it was a day where all the guys were trying to get signatures. We were trying to get 500 signatures on a petition to petition the headmaster to allow boys to grow their hair long. Because in, in South African schools, girls can have their hair long, but boys can't. And we thought this was terrible because the reason that they gave us, by the way, this is not part of the sermon, but the reason they told us boys can't grow their hair long is because it'll be greasy and disgusting. And we said, but the girls can grow their hair long. That doesn't make any sense. Long hair isn't necessarily greasy and disgusting. And everyone was just like, yes, but boys are greasy and disgusting, so their hair will be too. So, I mean, that was literally the reason why girls could have it anyway. That was the first time I realized petitions are sometimes ineffective. (laughs) Um, It was just ignored. So we don't want our petitions to be ineffective. We want to learn how to petition from God. And later in the prayer, we'll get to give us this day our daily bread, which is a petition. But we can start with this one because it is a petition. You're not saying hello to God. You are asking him, Father, Let your name be hallowed. Allow your name. Make your name. May your name be holy. So you're actually asking for something. In fact, the Holman Bible translates this verse, Father, your name be honored as holy. I think that takes some of that that um, confusion away. That it's not. Let your name be honored as holy. Now, which name? Hallowed be thy name. Which name? God has many different names, doesn't he? Um, He's called the I Am, uh, Yahweh, Adonai, which means Lord, Elohim, which means God, Jehovah Yireh, which means uh, Yahweh provides, El Elyon, the Most High God, El Olam, the Most Wise, and you can go on and on. So which name is it the one that we want to be hallowed? Well, asking that question is missing the point a little. it, it's, not, it's not a particular name you're looking for. It's the, the reputation of God and all that the name stands for. So you can have multiple names, and you might use different names based on the nuance that you want to stress in a person's life. Uh, have you ever heard of Joseph Bessarinius J. Yugasvili? You have, but you know him by the name Joseph Stalin. Well, Stalin wasn't his name. It was a nickname. Stalin means steel in Russian. And so no one wanted to call him every time they spoke about him as Joseph Bastianovsky, they wanted to call him Stalin so, because that's what stuck, right? And what, what was being emphasized by that name? Well, his steeliness probably, right? His, his firmness, his hardness, he was a dictator. And in the same way, when we talk about God's name, we're not talking, you can use each of those names to emphasize different things. Emphasize him as your God. Emphasize him as your Lord. Emphasize him as the God most high or the God most wise or the provider. My sister calls me Clint or Clinton 
if it's more formal, or Pig, which is what she usually calls me. Um, it's just something I started calling her when she was little. Um, and uh, then she lost all that weight, and, um, but the name stuck. But anyway, um, so she calls me Pig, I call her Pig, and it's, a, it's a, a cute little endearing thing that makes people shocked when they hear us talk to each other. It looks like we're insulting each other. But it does, when she wants to be more formal, then she'll call me by my presidential name, Clinton, you know, whatever. Um, she also had to call me Sir for a long time, because, well, for a year, because I was her teacher in high school as well, so she wasn't allowed to call me any of the things she wanted to call me. Um, now, the name of God is precious enough that it makes it into the Ten Commandments. It's the first one of the Ten Commandments. is Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And what the Jews understood that to mean at first was the understanding that you cannot call yourself one of Yahweh's people. You cannot bear his name as a banner over your life if you are not one of his people. That would be considered a sin. And that's why it's the first of the Ten Commandments. It's a very important commandment. Um, not the first of the Ten Commandments, sorry, but one of the first of the Ten Commandments, um, the ones dealing with God, don't make an image of him and don't even use his name in such a way that you don't deserve to use his name. That's what that means. Um, today, a, a parallel would be people who call themselves Christians but don't behave like Christians. Because you, when you call yourself a Christian, you are carrying the name of Christ as part of your reputation, and so you give Christ a bad name and other Christians a bad name if you're not living like a Christian. That was Exodus 20, verse 7. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God responds by saying, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will pr proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. So that's what he says. I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. Um, in Exodus 34, verse 5, Yahweh descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So Yahweh comes down on the cloud, is with Moses, and proclaims the name Yahweh. Then it says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Literally, the Hebrew is Yahweh, Yahweh, El. Your English version would say, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Yahweh, Yahweh, El. Um, and so he then lists his attributes. I'm going to tell you my name. My name is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions of sins, but who will know, by no means clear the guilty. So who is God? What is his name? Here's his name. I am who I am. And this is what I'm like. So when God talks about his name, he's talking about all of his attributes. Who he is, what he's like. And so when you say, Father, let your name become holy and respected and revered and famous and hallowed, by your creation, what you're saying is, let who you are become known and revered by everyone. Isn't that a great prayer? We just kind of throw it out there. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Hold on a second. Back up. Hallowed be your name is a great prayer to pray every day. You know when you wake up and you're so tired, you, don't, you can't think straight because you haven't had your coffee? Um, that's okay. You just drill into your head then. The first thing, you know, you want to wake up and your first thought wants to be, I want to greet God. Well, you can get up, instead of saying, hello, God, you can say, hallowed be your name, God. That's what I want for you today, in my life, in the lives of everyone, for everyone in the world. I want your name, your reputation, your attributes, who you are, to be made renowned, and then revered and respected by everybody. And what's great is, that prayer will one day be answered, won't it? Not for a while. But when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus teaching his disciples to pray this prayer will ultimately be manifest in him 
as God among us being revered by everybody who's left alive. Now, you might ask, does it really matter what you call God? Well, it doesn't matter which of his names you use, the names that he's revealed in Scripture, but it, it does matter what you're thinking about when you pray. And maybe I, I just throw this out there. This is, I'll step away from the pulpit here. This is just an opinion of mine. Um, personally, I've, I sometimes get uncomfortable when people use names for God that they've come up with rather than the ones that he's revealed in Scripture. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll talk about the big man upstairs. You know, um, or I've heard somebody call God, you know, the, the CEO of the world. And I mean, I understand what they're doing. They're just trying to make us think of his power or whatever from a different point of view. But I just wonder, I mean, that's like you making up a name for me that I don't prefer. <laughs> you know, I mean, you wouldn't know if I preferred it or not unless I told you. So well, why don't we just stick where possible with the names? God's given us so many of the ways he doesn't mind being referred to, the way he likes being referred to for us to now come up with more creative ones just seems to be missing the point a little. But I won't hold it against you. Um, God will. Um, so if, if the God you're worshiping is a different God from the one in the Bible, he has a different reputation, he has a different set of attributes, then it does matter what you call him. You know, sometimes people say, well, the Muslims, they call God Allah, and we call God, you know, God or Jesus, um, but they they're all, it doesn't matter what you call him. And, and No, 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 no. The, the Allah that the Muslims refer to is a type of being that is very different from the one that is represented in Scripture. He has different attributes. He's not the same, it's not the same God. And, and that can be confusing to Christians who move to Middle Eastern countries. I have friends that live in Dubai. And you know, all of their neighbors speak Arabic. And these are, I asked them, so what do you call God when you talk to these people to evangelize them? And they said, there is only one word in their language for God, it's Allah. And so the Christians use that word too. <laughs> um, and when Christians say Allah, they mean the God of the Bible. It's kind of like the word Elohim in Hebrew. In, um, the word Elohim in Hebrew just means God. But it can be God with a little g or God with a big g. It's determined by context. In fact, Elohim actually means the heavenly one. So sometimes angels are even called Elohim. Um, and so there's that confusion in some languages. But what I'm trying to tell you is that who you're thinking of when you talk about this being is very important. You need to be thinking about the one who has revealed himself in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. So when we say God, we're not just talking about any old God, not the same God as the Mormons or the same God as the Muslims. We're talking about the God in the Bible who goes by these names. And otherwise, you're just worshiping a different God. Um, which is really sad because there's people out there who think that they're worshiping God, but they're not. Um, I've, I've told you this funny story before where when the movie uh, Ocean's Eleven came out, there's this movie Ocean's Eleven, the main character was played by George Clooney. I know it's a remake of a television show, but George Clooney plays Danny Ocean. And he's this very smooth, you know, a criminal. He's a, he's a con artist. And in the first movie, he has, he has business cards. Well, not business cards. He has uh, calling cards that just have his name on it, Danny Ocean. Very classy. It's just a classy font. And then he'll, you know, leave his calling card that he's been there. And I was talking to a friend and um, saying to her how much I thought this was so cool that th there was this calling card and how it's such a pity we don't use that anymore. We have business cards that you have your data on it. But, you know, if I go visit someone in the hospital and they're sleeping, I don't wake them up, I don't want to leave them a business card. I want to leave them a calling card, you know, like they used to do in the old days, in Oscar Wilde's days. And I was just talking about how cool it is and how, what a pity we don't have that anymore. Well, how nice would it be just to have a card that said Clint Archer on it? that just looks sophisticated, you know, embossed, and I'll just leave it. I've been here, you know. Um, so, I mean, I was young. I was little when I was saying these things. But anyway, <laughs> so what she did is for my birthday, she got me, or maybe it was for Christmas or whatever, but she, I think it was my birthday, she got me a set of calling cards. And I was so excited. And I opened it up, and on the calling card, the whole set, it said, Danny Ocean. <laughs> and I... 
I didn't realize this was a gag gift and she was mocking me. <laughs> I thought she had completely misunderstood what I thought was cool about this. <laughs> I didn't think it was cool that he had a calling card and I wanted his calling card. I wanted a calling card with my name on it. And then she, she then pulled out another box of calling cards that did have my name on it. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, gag gift, I get it. But um, <laughs> that's kind of what we do when we, we, we're just, we stick the label of God on concepts that aren't God. And, and we need to be careful of that. We don't want to mislabel him. So we don't want to represent him. We don't want to imagine him as different from the way he represents himself here as well. And so, by the way, this is why we as a church do missions. This is why we support missionaries and send them all over the world. This is why we plant churches. This is why we support this type of thing. This is why we, we support preaching. It's why? Because we want God's name to be hallowed. We want his name to be exported. We want his name to be represented in every nook and cranny of the globe. And if they find life on Mars, we'll, we'll go send missionaries there too. You know, we, we want his name spread everywhere because we want his name to be hallowed. So that's the, the meaning of the prayer. Let's look at the motive of this petition now. The, the motive, really, of all of your, your prayers. Um, in verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Yeah, I mean, it's the same verse we've been reading. But what I, the point I want to make here is that this is, your first petition is actually, it's not like a line item in the prayer. It's more like, consider it more like an umbrella desire of the whole prayer. Because the rest of the prayer, you're still praying with this idea that everything I'm praying is coming under this umbrella that I want your name to be revered. I want your name to be respected. And we see this in James chapter 4. Um, James chapter 4 is going to help us understand this concept that it's what makes a prayer a wrong prayer is not the format of the prayer. It's not the vocabulary of the prayer. It's the motive. Some people say, oh, I don't want to pray in public. I'm, I don't know. I'm a little self-conscious about the way that I pray. That's not a wrong prayer. You know, pastor said that there was a wrong way to pray. Well, yeah, go listen to that sermon and what the wrong way to pray is. And it's not, it's not the format. It's not like you ask God for a promotion at work and he says, well, you didn't say beseech in your prayer. So the answer is no. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not how it works. You don't have to beseech God or whatever. You can just talk to him. But um, it's the motive of your prayer that makes it right or wrong. Uh, James 4 verse 2 you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, here's the real reason, because you do not ask. Well, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it'll say, with wrong motives. I like that translation. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. What are your motives? To spend it on your passions, your desires. So what James is saying there is that if your motive for your prayer is your own, whatever, comfort, prestige, um, enjoyment, whatever it is, if, if, the, if the sole purpose you're asking God for something is because of you, You've missed the point of your prayer. That's why God's saying no to it. So the reason you don't have what you want is because you're not asking for it, or what you want is the wrong thing, and you are asking for it. So you can change what you want to the right thing and ask for it, and then you will get it, is what James is saying. So if your motive in your prayer is for your comfort or your prestige or for your lusts, then you are actually praying against God's will. He's not going to answer a prayer that's against his will because every prayer needs to be offered him in Jesus' name. And, and recap class, do we remember what a name is? The name refers to all of who you are, your reputation, all of your attributes. So if you're, you're praying for something against what Jesus stands for in the name of Jesus, you're not praying in the name of Jesus. In fact, that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It's not to tack on the phrase, in your name, amen, in the name of Jesus, amen, which, I mean, I do, I do that too. In almost all my prayers, I do that largely out of habit. But what I'm, I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to punctuate is that we're, 
we believe that what we're praying is in line with who Jesus is. That's what we're asking God. We're asking God the Father for something in line with who Jesus is. For his glory, not ours. So I'll give you an example. You know, one of the common prayers around exam time from students is going to be, please help me with my exams. And, you know, if, if you've been in, in our young adults group and you've asked us to pray for your exams, I don't wrap you over the knuckles. I pray for your exams, but if you listen carefully what I'm praying, I'm, I'm usually trying to teach something as well. Now I'm just going to say it. What exactly are you praying for when you ask God to help you with your exams? I mean, it's not like he's going to whisper the answer to the test question in your ear. That would be cheating. <laughs> um, so what do you mean, help me with my exams or help me do well on my exams? Are you praying please make up the difference for the work that I didn't put in. Please help me get a good grade, even if I don't deserve it. Because if you know that you've put in the work, and you've done what it takes to get a good grade, what help do you need? What are you asking for? Now, I mean, maybe you're asking for, help me not to get anxious. Help me not to be sinful that day. Help me not to blow the importance of this out of proportion so that I, I can focus on what I've learned and that I can actually produce what I have put in the work. Those are all good reasons. Bad reason is, I, I didn't even read the book. Lord, please, please. I was going to get the movie, and it was checked out. So you know I tried. <laughs> please help me pass this test. Like, no. He's, he's, what he would want to do is for you to fail so badly and be so humiliated to understand the consequences of laziness that for the rest of your life, you repent of that sin of laziness. That's what God wants for you. He doesn't want you to get a good grade. He wants you to be like Jesus. So be careful what you pray for. People say, uh, pray that I get that promotion at work. This, so and so, there's this opening at work and I want the promotion. Again, why? We often just think that whenever there's an opportunity for something good to happen to us, ooh, 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 let's ask God to give that to us. Why? What about the other Christians who want that promotion? Are you praying against them? Are you, praying, are you honestly praying that other Christians don't get something that's good for them? So what are you praying for? I want a promotion so that I can make more money so that I can live more comfortably. Eh, no, now you're back at James 4.2. Now you're praying for your own passions. Well, I want a promotion so that I can be in charge and tell these people what to do instead of being told, eh, nope, now you're back at your own passions. So these are wrong ways of praying, and that's why God's not answering your prayer. You have to realize your prayer is not about you. That's why Jesus says, when you start off your prayer, say, Father, may your name be hallowed. Not mine. If you now say, may your name be hallowed, now I've got a list of things that are going to hallow my name. You're not praying the right prayer. I want your name to be hallowed. I want you to get glory. I want Christ to be exalted. Now I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of stuff that's got nothing to do with your glory in Christ, but all about me. Because I did the whole, you hello your name, now we hello my name. No. No, this is the umbrella desire of every part of your petition. Even when we get to give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because we need you to do that so we can be dependent on you. So we can give you thanks for it. So we can continue with the energy from this food to give you glory. Not so we can be more comfortable. See. You always want to pray for God's glory. The Westminster Catechism says, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you want to pray for something. So you need to orient your prayer to line up with God's will, God's agenda, God's attributes, God's name, God's reputation, wanting that to spread. And frankly, often his name spreads better and looks better and is received better by people when you're struggling and doing it in a godly way than when you're comfortable and happy and getting all the promotions, winning all the lottery tickets or whatever it is you're praying for, getting all the parking spots. That's not when God's name is most hallowed. God's name is most hallowed when you're going through the most difficult time in your life and you're still praising him. So maybe you should go home and pray for trials. There's no need to do that. Don't ask for trials. 
let him decide the dosage you need. <laughs> you don't go to a pharmacist and say, I'd like this dosage of this medicine. No, 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 no. You wait till they tell you what the dosage is, right? But your motive can be, I want to be more like Christ. God will take care of the rest. Don't be praying against his plans for you all the time. Matthew 6, verse 7, in fact, says, um, Do not be like the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So he says, Don't be like the Gentiles that pile up their prayers with these long, empty phrases, and they're trying to manipulate God into giving them something. God knows your need before you ask him. Matthew 6, verse 8. Now I know what you're thinking. Why pray if God already knows what I need before I ask him? He knows better than me. In fact, chances are I'm going to ask for something I don't actually need. So why not just not pray and leave it up to him to know what I need and give me what I need? And I'll know what it is by what I get. Well... If that's what you're asking, if God is sovereign and he can't be manipulated and he knows all my needs, why pray? The answer is this. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. Prayer changes you. He wants you to pray and pray and keep praying. That's why it says pray persistently. It's not because he's going to hear you on the eighth time that he didn't hear you on the first time. I've got all these plates I'm spinning, so if you really want something, just keep being the squeaky wheel, and I'll get back to you. If you ask once and be quiet, I'm going to forget. That's not how God operates. So why do you have to keep asking? Why the parable of the persistent widow? Why the, why the continual keep asking, keep asking? Because if you're asking wrongly, he wants you to keep asking until you're asking rightly. So that when you make the adjustment and you get the answer, you're like, oh, that's what I was doing wrong all along. So don't just pray the same prayer over and over and over. Keep praying the prayer differently, lining it up more and more and more with God's glory and God's reputation and God's name being hallowed. And then when it lines up, he'll answer it. So I'm sure many of you have testimonies of this. My, I mean, I, I have innumerable testimonies of times that I prayed for something I badly, badly wanted. And then as I was begging God for it, nagging God for it, you could say, <laughs> and I would start slowly praying differently. I was like, why am I not getting this thing that I know is good and that God wants to give me? Maybe, maybe it's not good. Maybe I need to pray something else. Maybe I need to pray for patience with it. And, and you start praying differently and so you start off like praying for a wife there's a particular wife i prayed for and god said no and now looking back i'm like thank you lord best unanswered prayer ever nothing about her she's great but i got a, i got an upgrade you know <laughs> um with my wife and then when i was praying for a wife and the one that i actually ended up getting it's also like you're praying because lord and your word says that uh if you desire a wife that's a good thing and and it comes from you so i want the good thing that you want so why do we just how about now um you know and then but why? Why do you need a wife? Why do you need a wife now? And slowly as you're praying, you, you start praying for God's glory and I need help in ministry, Lord. Maybe is that the thing you want me to say? Or, but, you know, and, and you start until eventually you land up with a, a genuine, sincere understanding of I want what's going to give you the most glory. And if that's to be single now and even for the rest of my life, please know, Lord, but if it is, then... Um, then I trust you that you're good. And I want your will to be done. And then he answers that prayer. One way or the other, right? Um, another example that's just a... I mean, it sounds so silly now talking about all these years later, but when I was, when I was very young, I had this dream of mine that I wanted to see my name in print. And that's, that's, I, like, I wanted to be an author. I wanted to write a book. And see my name in print was the big thing. And then... Um, you know, as I got older and I, I got some studies and got into a position where like, okay, now I can write a book. Um, I'm, I'm going to write a book. Why? Because I want to see my name in print. I've always wanted to see my name in print. And Kim beat me to it, actually, because her name got in print before me. Not many people know that. Ask her about that sometime. Um, so that really bugged me because I wanted my name in print first. But anyway, um, you can see already, like, as a young person, you're just thinking, oh, I want to be an author. I just, this is something I want. But why? I never ever stopped to ask why. For me, it was just like a, it was a milestone. It was an attainment. It was something that I'd, it was like people who say, I want to climb Everest. 
Why? You know, well, because it's there, because it's an attainment. It's something I want to do. And so it was something I was striving for, and I was praying for the Lord. I'd written this book. My first book was The Preacher's Payday. And um, I'd written the book, and I just kept getting rejection letters. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to publish it. Nobody thought it was as good as what I thought it was. Uh, so I'm okay. Well, I'm going to pray. I got friends in high places. The Lord can make this work. And, but as I was praying, it became more and more obvious to me that this is a really, really tacky prayer to be praying. To see my name in print. So I actually thought at one point, well, what if I go by a pseudonym? I changed my name to something that nobody will know that it's me. But I was like, there's got to be a better way. John Piper doesn't do that. Um, <laughs> or John MacArthur or any of the Johns. Um, so I just started praying differently. And it's tweaking and tweaking until eventually I really got to the point where I was like, you know what, I actually, I just want the Lord's people to be blessed with the things that I learned that I didn't know until I learned them. And now I, I want to share those things about eternal rewards specifically. Eternal rewards was such a new concept to me. And so I wanted to, I had this book, I wanted people to read it. And, and sl surely, sure, slowly, slowly, slowly but surely, um, my prayers changed until eventually I was completely happy with not seeing my name in print, but just wanting the material out there. And we started a blog and started putting the material on there. And that's what led to the book being published. And then I saw my name in print and I was like, yeah, that's, that's no big deal. <laughs> it had lost its luster. And it was just kind of like, after all that, this is what I wanted. But then I started getting letters from people who had read the book and saying how much it had changed them, and how they'd never heard of eternal rewards before, and how they've now, all the sacrifice they're going through has so much more meaning, and decisions they're making about life, and missions. I got, I got a letter from someone saying they were going on the mission field because they read the book. This is a person who's now going to preach the gospel to other people who are going to get saved, and this is going to echo through eternity. And I was like, that's, now that's a reason to write a book, so that people can be blessed by it, right? And so... It was just a maturing thing. I was just, I, I was just too young to realize what a, what a little thing it was to get your name in print when there's so much fruit out there that could be done for the kingdom. And so I'm sure you've got testimonies like that as well, and I'd encourage you to think through your life when that's happened or if it hasn't, that you experiment with that. We think through, what's something that I really want that God's not giving me? And maybe it's because that's not what's best for you to want. Even if the thing that you want is a good thing, your, your disposition towards it is not right. And that if God gives it to you, it might actually draw you further from him. And he won't want that. So, if you pray for something, and you are honest enough to admit that it's not primarily for God's glory, then you should expect him to say no to that. But here's the surprise advice I'm going to give you. Keep praying for it anyway. So if you're praying for something that's good, that's not... That's not overtly sinful. It's something that you know is good. Like if you're single and you want to pray for, to be married, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But even if you know deep down this isn't for God's glory, just confess that, own it, but don't stop praying for it. Keep praying because allow the prayer to change you. And when you get to the point where the prayer's changed you, that's when the mission is accomplished. Whether you get the answer or not, you might get to the point where you're like, I'm actually going to stop praying for that now because now I realize that that's not good for me. So this might flip your prayer around 180 degrees, but at least you will be praying, as Jesus said to, Father, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this reminder, um, such a basic and yet important reminder, because we, we forget so easily when we pray. We're just driven by the things in the in the urgency of life, where we think this is something that's good, or something that we need, or something that it would be beneficial for us so even your kingdom and we're not seeing the big picture like you do and so we submit to you and we say um, not our will but thine be done but we do pray that your name would be hallowed in our church and in our lives that your name would be revered in mobile and throughout the nation and the world and that we could be part of that and we pray that you would use our petitions in order to spread your glory and we pray this in jesus name because of what he did for us amen Okay, we got some time for questions tonight. Any questions? Yes, Rusty.
Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, praying for a person's salvation. Let's say a loved, a loved one that you know and you're praying for them to be saved. Um, I mean, that's always so difficult because we believe so strongly that God is the one who is sovereign over a person's salvation. That's why we ask him to save them. Because you, can, you can't drag this person into the kingdom kicking and screaming. God needs to change their heart. So you can share the gospel with them, but you can't manipulate them into coming into the kingdom. But you can ask God to change their heart. Um, so I think that that's a, a good prayer and a right prayer, and it shows your heart for the lost when you pray for them to be saved. Um, and I think that if there's someone in your life that's, that's unsaved, that you feel a burden to pray for, you should keep praying for that and, and not lose heart and know that it's a good prayer and it's what God uses to save people. And there's many, many testimonies of parents, especially praying for their kids for many, 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 many years before they get saved. Um, and I think that maybe what happens during that time, your question was, how, how does the change happen with that prayer? Because that prayer is not going to, that prayer is not going to change significantly. It might, it might shift from please save them to please save them in your timing. Um, please save them in a way that brings you glory or please, please bring them to the end of themselves so that they know to cry out to you, you know. So you might pray it differently, but it's always going to be oriented towards salvation. It's always the best thing for them and for God's glory. Um, and I think at most you would get to a point where you might say, if it's your will to save them, if that's what gives you more glory, then please save them. With the implication that sometimes it gives God glory to punish the unjust rather than to save them from that. And that's all in his wisdom. And we don't know. So we should always just pray for the thing that we feel that we know from scripture is the best thing to pray for which is a person's salvation i don't know if that sounded like a politician's answer that was trying to get around it or if that was helpful but that's all i got for you rusty anyone else yes brandy your, what do you say to someone who says it doesn't matter because your prayer gets fixed on the other side you're talking about romans 8 right where the the spirit intercedes for us um, and in ways that we don't know how to pray and he changes our prayers and, and repairs them. Um, well, yeah, I mean, th thanks for bringing that up. Okay, so maybe I should just read that if you're not familiar with that passage. Um, um, verse 26, Romans eight twenty-six. Uh, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what that verse is talking about is the Spirit actually helps you. If you're a believer and the Holy Spirit's in you and you're praying wrongly, he helps you in that weakness, that mistake you're making. Um, for we don't know how to pray, what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So what happens there is, let's say I'm praying for, let's just pick something, a promotion at work, and I don't realize yet in my immaturity that that's not what's good for me or the company or for God's glory or for my family or for whatever it is. Maybe the promotion will take me away from my kids and this is a crucial time where they need me at home and God sees that in the future and I don't. And so him saying no to that prayer is actually what's best for me and my family and his glory and I don't see any of that. So I'm praying for something that's against God's will but the spirit in me intercedes for me on my behalf. So it's almost like I'm praying for this and he's kind of like my attorney putting his hand over my mouth saying what he means to ask for is that he doesn't get this promotion so that he can be a better dad at home and that he has less money so that he has to depend more on you, which is going to lead to this and this and this in the future. Okay, go keep praying, you know, like that kind of thing. So, so then I think Brandy's question is, well, then someone might say, why, why bother with trying to pray rightly then or whatever the Spirit's just going to fix it? Well, again, it's, all of your prayers are ending up right because of the Spirit, but you don't know that. You don't know what the right prayer is until you're praying in line with the Spirit. So the reason you keep praying and adjusting it 
adjusting yourself is, again, you're moving more in line with the way the prayers ought to be prayed. So another way to say that is everything in your life is happening according to the, the prayers of the Spirit. Everything that's happening to you is what God wants to happen to you. You just don't feel that yet. You don't agree yet. You, you might submit to it intellectually, but you don't, you're not asking for that yet. But the reason to keep praying is so that you do eventually. Because that's what maturity looks like. Maturity is just constantly giving God what he wants rather than what we want. Just like a, a, a teacher who says, when you give me the math problem, don't just give me the answer. Show me you're working out and I want at least four steps or whatever. And you think that's so dumb. I know the answer. I can do it in my head. So you just keep giving the answer. And you keep failing the tests. And you're going to keep failing those tests until you line your will up with the teacher's will and give the teacher what the teacher wants. And it's the same with our prayers. You're just going to keep thinking that God's not answering when he is actually answering the right prayer until you do it in the right way and then you'll see, oh, he's been answering this prayer rightly for me. Does that answer it? Right, thanks. Anyone else? Yes, Bryant. Yeah, Brian's got a good question about um, what's often referred to as the synoptic problems in the Gospels, for example. So the synoptic problems in the Gospels refer to the first three Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, are written about the, the synopsis of Christ's life. So it's an unfolding of the events of Christ's life, whereas John's is a thematic Gospel about some a theological Gospel. So, so the, of those three, you would expect if there's three Gospels all writing about the events of Christ's life, and they're all inerrant, meaning they all don't make mistakes, that they would all be the same in every place. There would, no, there would be no place where it looks like they're contradicting. And yet, when you read the three synoptic gospels, there are places where it looks like Matthew's saying something different from what Mark's saying, or is saying different from what Luke's saying. And so, for example, our, our text tonight, in um, Luke 11, the disciples ask for a prayer, and Jesus says, Pray, Father, um, hallowed be your name. But Matthew says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. That's left out of Luke, etc. So then it's like, well, what happens? So Brian's asking, one of the, one of the solutions is, and, and my answer to you is actually, there's a both and. There, both of those types of things do happen. And one of the solutions is the one I believe that's happening in Luke is that those are two separate events that were similar but not the same event at all. And so the records obviously wouldn't be the same. So one is Jesus is on the Sermon of the Mount and he's teaching the people to pray and he, he, prays them, he gives them a more full template. Um, on a different occasion, the disciples say, hey, John's teacher teaches them, can you teach us? And he gives them the same lesson he gave before. But now he, it's a little, the prayer's a little shorter. So both of those are recorded. Two different events are recorded. And when you read through, it looks like there's, a, there's differences in the prayer. And this one says it happened here. I mean, Luke, Luke's sermon happens on a plane. And Matthew has a sermon that happens on the mount. Well, either... Jesus preached that same sermon twice. I do that too, by the way. I preach the same sermon twice. <laughs> preach once in Texas and once in Mobile and once in South Africa. You know, once you've got a good sermon, that's your silver bullet. That's the one when, when they ask you to come preach, you preach that one. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is like a pretty silver bullet sermon. So I would imagine Jesus preached it many times in his ministry. And it was recorded in two different events. Once when he was on a plane and once when he was in the mountain. I, there's, there's, why would that be a problem at all? Um, the other solution Brian's talking about is people would say, well, no, it's, um, it's not different events, it's the same event, and that does happen sometimes, where the same event details look different. So one example is um, 
Peter is told, Jesus says to him, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Um, and I forget which gospel writer says what, but one of the other gospel writers says, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. So which did Jesus say? He says, if we're quoting him word for word and there's no mistakes, did he say before three times? Or you'll deny me three times before the cock crows once. Well, he doesn't say once, he just says cock crows. And so part of, you know, there are people out there that do this for a living. You can buy something called The Harmony of the Gospels by Robert Thomas. Um, he was a professor of mine at seminary and, and they, they harmonize these. They show how it could happen. And usually the answer is Jesus said both. And one recorded one and one recorded the other. So Jesus said to Peter the same thing twice and once he emphasized that he would deny him three times before the cock crows and the other time he emphasized that the cock would crow three times, um, etc. So if you approach all of those, there's like a list of them. There's a finite number of these so-called contradictions. And if you approach it with the, the mindset of I'm going to assume that there's no mistakes here, they always do fit. They always do fit. So uh, another famous one is that in Acts chapter 1, it says that Judas killed himself by um, falling headlong down a, a cliff and his guts spilling open, and that's why the field is called Hakodama, which is field of blood to this day. Whereas the gospel account said that he went out and hanged himself. And so some people say, you see, well, he can't have hanged himself and jumped off a cliff. Well, it doesn't say he jumped off a cliff. It says he fell headlong. So what happens is, very simple, he hangs himself on a tree. And in fact, it works better if you understand it this way. He hangs, because if you just, fall down a, you just fall down a hill, you don't burst open on your guts anyway, unless you have been hanging dead for a while. <laughs> so if he's hanging on a tree and no one wants to touch him, because um, it is a man who hangs on a tree and he's there for days and he starts swelling and then the tree breaks, under his weight or there's a storm or whatever, erosion in the tree falls and he falls down and breaks open. Both of those accounts are true then. So a skeptic would say, that's a stretch. And I'm like, it's either that or we just toss the whole Bible in a shredder. So I'm, I'm going to go with the stretch. <laughs> you know?